It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 89, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today, John Hendrickson, raises two acres of cover crops and vegetables at Stone Circle Farm in Reeseville, Wisconsin. He also works for the University of Wisconsin's Center for Integrated Agricultural Studies, also known as CIAS, where he has led any number of interesting projects and where he organizes the Wisconsin School for Beginning Market Growers. This is not a story about how John makes hundreds of thousands of dollars on two acres. It is a story about how John set out to grow a farm and how and why he decided to remain a part-time farmer. John shares the way he's organized his production and marketing to provide a financially and emotionally rewarding supplement to his day job. We dig into John's narrow crop focus and why that works for him and for his farming business, how he rotates those crops with cover crops for soil building and weed control, the tools he uses to manage sales to his and his wife's co-workers, and his discovery of the paper pot transplanter system while in Japan and the subsequent founding of his company, Small Farm Works. Before we hear from our sponsors and get started with the show, I want to take a moment to honor somebody who I often quote, who passed away last week. Alan Nation was a longtime leader in the grass farming world. And Alan wasn't just a great resource about grazing. He brought a lot of wisdom to the world of sustainable farming and marketing in general. My favorite quote from Alan is, you can be a nudist and people won't think you're super weird because it's just one thing weird about you. And you can be a Buddhist and people will give you a pass because that's only one weird thing about you. But you can't be a nudist Buddhist. That's too weird. Let's keep up the good work, people. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by Farmers Web, making it simple for farms to work with wholesale buyers such as restaurants, retail stores, and schools. Farmers Web software streamlines your wholesale operations, making it easier to work with your buyers and with more buyers overall. FarmersWeb.com. John Hendrickson, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Great to be here, Chris. So glad you could join me on a sunny Sunday afternoon here in Wisconsin. Yeah, you know, um, the conversations that I've been having with people lately is all about how warm this fall is. And the warmth is a little troubling, but what's more concerning for me is the fact that it just hasn't been cold. We haven't had a hard frost. Well, you and I were talking before I pushed the record button here, and you were talking about your carrots. Yeah, I've still got carrots in the ground, and I really like to wait until they've gone through um, several freezes before harvesting. You know, the starches turn to sugars; they taste better, they store better. Um, the cust, you know, they're a lot easier to sell if the customers think they're the great tasting carrots that they usually are. And right now, the the carrots that I've dug are okay, but they're they're not as good as they have been in the past. So before we go too far down the the road of talking about the carrots at Stone Circle Farm. I think we should back up a little bit and have you give us an introduction to, and in your case, it's not just Stone Circle Farm. I think we need kind of an introduction to John Hendrickson Incorporated and all of the all of the things that you've got your fingers in. Yeah, all the different hats that I wear. So um, I have my own small farm, Stone Circle Farm, and it's really kind of remained a small farm because uh, my primary activity is working for the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I've been there since I was a graduate student at the Center for Integrated Agricultural Systems, which is a uh, sustainable ag research education and outreach unit. I do a lot of different things there from research to running training programs for beginning farmers, which we can talk about. 
Uh, that is a nine-month, 75% time appointment. And so that leaves me a sliver of my life to try to run my farm. For a long time, the, the goal was to eventually cut the umbilical cord to the university and be a full-time farmer. Um, we can talk about the reasons why that didn't happen as we move forward. Um, and then the other thing that I do is I have a small company with my wife, Karen, uh, called Small Farm Works, uh, which is currently importing the paper pot transplanting system from Japan. Uh, we're hoping to import some other equipment from there and perhaps other parts of the country as well in the future. But for now, uh, we're just focused on that paper chain pot system. Give us a little bit of background on Stone Circle Farm. How many acres are you farming? What are you guys producing? How are you selling it? Those kinds of details. Sure. Uh, and not just currently, but historically. Yeah, that would be great. Sure. Uh, we bought the farm in 1999. It's a 20-acre property, which is actually relatively hard to find these days. Um, at the time we bought it, I was hoping to buy a larger farm, um, didn't have the money for anything bigger, and I actually ended up being happy that I didn't end up with anything bigger. Because uh, even if you're not farming at all, there's just a lot of management um, that needs to be done on a property. And uh, I can't even keep up with, with the 20 acres. And maybe I could if I you know, stopped working at the university, but um, it's a challenge to do on a part-time uh, as a part-time farmer, which is really what I've kind of settled into being um, here. We um, we're a little, a little bizarre in terms of being a small scale farm in that we've over our history have um, not exclusively, but primarily been a wholesale oriented farm. Most farms um, of our scale or even larger are uh, doing a lot of direct marketing and we do a small amount of that. But when I first started the farm, I was involved with a project at the university to get a cooperative off the ground. That cooperative was Homegrown Wisconsin, which was a marketing co-op that existed. Uh, about two dozen farms were involved in that, um, a bit more than that at its peak. But in terms of the farms that were actively selling, it was a smaller number. And that co-op was created to sell product from organic vegetable farms to restaurants, uh, originally with the Madison market in mind. But the Madison restaurants were already really well served by um, a lot of farms, including farms that were already in the co-op. So the co-op um, started selling into Chicago, which at the time was somewhat uh, or really underserved by, by vegetable growers. And so uh, for many years, the co-op uh, did a great deal of business uh, selling to Chicago. The co-op didn't end up surviving. So we shifted to doing some more, more direct wholesale to restaurant customers more locally. And we were doing some of that when we were selling through Homegrown as well. At uh, about four or five years ago, I became pretty dissatisfied with my quality of life. Uh, it was really difficult to keep pushing the farm bigger, uh, and I was also getting a little bit more complex in terms of different marketing outlets. And I didn't like how um, anxious uh, stressed I was a lot of the time. I didn't like how I was interacting with my two sons, who were beginning to work more and more on the farm, who were not crazy about working on the farm, and that's a whole 
you know, show in and of itself in terms of working with your children on a farm. I'm sure you've talked with other guests about that issue. So I ended up um, deciding, hey, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not ever going to push this farm to a scale that's going to, you know, supplant the income um, that I want and need to make to help support uh, my household. And I should say that my wife works off the farm as well. And so she's never been involved in the farm in terms of farming, farming work. So we downsized and have basically been in a process of trying to settle into something uh, suitable and sustainable um, that keeps, I'm still really interested in farming and still really love a, a lot of it, uh, but, but trying to uh, evolve into something that uh, is satisfying, uh, does supply some income as you know, somewhat sustaining in terms of a, of a business, but that gives me a better quality of life. And so what that has settled into currently is I've had basically three main enterprises on my farm that I've uh, developed or retained from the past. One thing that happened quite a number of years ago is that I started providing the garlic for another large, um, well, another, another farm that does a CSA. And they have decided to buy in a couple products. They buy in potatoes and they buy in uh, my garlic. And that's a really, really nifty enterprise because uh, while I don't, you know, it's not CSA and then I get the money up front, but I don't have to do any marketing. They take all my garlic, uh, including the scapes in the spring, and then they take everything but the garlic that I'm going to plant for seed in the fall on a every other week on average basis. So it's a really easy enterprise. I don't have any marketing costs. I actually really have very little minimal distribution costs because I deliver to one of their employees' houses in Madison uh, when I'm going to Madison anyway. And then that employee takes the garlic down down to Stephen, uh, Stephen Bath at TP Produce that I work with on that. So that's uh, Enterprise 1. Um, Enterprise 2 is something that I fell into. Uh, what year was that? I'm going to blank on what year it was. But back when I was selling a lot through homegrown Wisconsin, the heirloom tomato phenomenon hit big time. And the chefs were crazy about the heirloom tomatoes and everyone was going to wanted to get on board with the, the heirloom tomato craze. But homegrown Wisconsin had a priority system so that not everyone was competing on all the products that, that homegrown Wisconsin was trying to sell to the restaurant customers. And I was not a priority grower for tomatoes and I never was going to be. So I wanted to get involved in this heirloom thing. So I decided to investigate heirloom peppers and I bought a whole bunch of different types of heirloom peppers one year and did a trial and picked some that I liked um, to keep growing. And one that I tried was a pepper called the beaver dam pepper. And I had to grow the beaver dam pepper because I used to live in beaver dam for a while when my wife was teaching school there in, in the beaver dam school district. So I tried the beaver dam pepper and I didn't feel like it had a market. And so I only grew it that one year when I was doing those trials. And then about four or five years later, for reasons that I still can't pinpoint, when I was doing my seed order, I decided to order a packet of beaver dam pepper seeds. And I had no good reason to do it because I'd really come to make a decision on my farm that I really wasn't into speculative growing. I, I didn't want to grow something that I didn't know that I had a market for. But 
for whatever reason, you know, sometimes you go crazy when you're, when you're looking at seed catalogs, <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> so in a moment of craziness, I ordered beaver and pepper seed. And then in the middle of the growing season, I got a phone call from, uh, rink to V who runs shooting star farm, who at the time was, um, doing some consolidating, aggregating and, and distribution, uh, with a little company that he called green and green, which had kind of stepped into the vacuum that was created when homegrown Wisconsin disappeared. And Ring said, Hey, John, do you have any of those beaver dam peppers? And I said, actually I do. And it turned out that there was a woman in, in Chicago that had a, a business, um, that was basically totally devoted to developing products, uh, value added process products out of heirloom vegetables, uh, to try to, you know, keep them alive. So, uh, for the next several years, uh, this company bought a, quite significant quantities of beaver dam peppers for, from me to first make into pickles. And then they started making a hot sauce. And then the last thing that they trialed was a, um, a hot pepper, um, jelly. And so I've been, I've been growing these heirloom peppers for, um, quite a while now. And I'm now a regular feature at the Beaver Dam Pepper Festival, which is held at the end of the the summer every year in Beaver Dam uh, to celebrate this uh, heirloom pepper that was brought from Hungary by immigrants sewn into the hems of their clothes way back in the day. And that's been great fun. Um, so that little, uh, but the business uh, that's making those products is being sold right now. So I'm not sure of the status of my Beaver Dam Pepper Enterprise for the future. So that's a big question mark um, going into this off season. And then the last enterprise is I grew, like to grow carrots, uh, which we just we already mentioned a little bit at the beginning of the show. Um, I'm told that my carrots are the best by by lots and lots of customers. So I've been doing a, a large fall crop of carrots to store through the winter time, and that's where we've moved away from doing doing the wholesale, and we're primarily well selling a lot of those carrots. Um, to direct customers through the wintertime at the university and my wife's school. Although we still, we do wholesale some of those as well. We sell to a local school district and uh, we've been selling, shipping some of those down to Chicago. All together with the carrots, the peppers and the garlic, how many acres are you farming? Well, if we toss in cover crops to that, um, it's about two acres. Okay. We, uh, we were uh, the most we ever farmed uh, when we were at our peak selling through homegrown Wisconsin was three. So we've always been pretty darn small, but for most of our history, almost exclusively wholesale. And I know you'll have an answer to this, John, because of the work that you've done with financial benchmarking. But how much are you grossing then? Obviously, you're wholesaling, not retailing, which changes some of what we could expect for gross sales on that two acres. But but what are you looking at bringing into your into your life? Well, at the at the time that I was peaking in terms of selling through homegrown Wisconsin, that was also a time when I was doing a study at the university that led to a publication called Grower to Grower, um, earning a livelihood on a fresh market vegetable farm. And what we did in that project was collect data from, well, we started out with 24 farms, but we had a little bit of attrition, so it ended up being 19 farms. And we tracked those farms over three years. And we collect data on on gross income and scale of operation and um, some other information like payroll and um, payroll expense and things like that. And so we put together some ratios, gross income per acre, net cash income to gross, um, 
payroll as a percent of gross income. And at the time, I felt really good about my gross income per acre relative to that study. Um, I was right on par with farms that were doing primarily retail direct market sales in terms of being at like, you know, 15 or more thousand dollars per acre. Now, today, most farms are earning considerably more than that per acre. But at the time, that was really common. And why do you think that is? Why why do you think you were getting and, and presumably still are getting the kind of value doing wholesale sales that other farms are getting doing retail sales? That's a really good question, Chris. And I've anticipated that you were going to ask that question. <laughs> and so I was trying to think about that earlier this morning. And I think part of it was the the crops that I was selling primarily through Homegrown Wisconsin. I was doing a lot of baby vegetables. And so I was doing, you know, really intensive plantings of beets and carrots and things like that. And so I was pulling a lot of product out of the space that I was growing in. And while I was selling wholesale, I was selling real specialty crop wholesale stuff. I wasn't selling potatoes. I wasn't selling cabbage. Um, I wasn't selling, you know, full-size carrots. I was selling baby carrots that I actually sold by the count, not by the pound. And if you figured it out in terms of a, you know, a, a dollar per pound price, it was through the roof. But you were selling to a very specific audience they, that valued having a small carrot. Maybe it was something that was going on as a, as a garnish on the plate or was being used in a feature dish, not just being chopped up and thrown into a soup. Exactly. I, I sometimes uh, tease uh, myself and other farms like me that they, that were garnish farms. Um, well, I'm not anymore because I'm not doing the sales to restaurants. But at the time, yeah, you 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 grow all this stuff and you ship it down to Chicago, and I don't get down to Chicago very often, and you wonder how it's being used. And every once in a while, homegrown Wisconsin would organize a trip uh, where the members of the co-op could go down and visit. You know, we'd visit maybe uh, a half dozen restaurants or probably fewer than that in a day and we go into the kitchens and meet the chef and they'd, you know, some, at some point during the day, we'd, we'd get a meal at one of these restaurants and you'd see how the food was being used. And, um, and you end up thinking, okay, these little baby carrots that I'm sending down, you know, a customer that goes, that's going, going into this restaurant is going to get one or two of those. (laughs) And really there's nothing wrong with that because I think the smaller the operation you are and the more of a hand scale that you're operating at, the more important it is to really maximize the dollars that are coming off of every square foot of your farm. You couldn't compete in the world of growing, say, potatoes or at least not you know, standard russet potatoes. You might be able to compete in a world doing fingerlings uh, that required being dug by hand, but you're not going to make it in a market that where, again, somebody's making potato soup or making hash browns out of what you're out of what you're selling them. They can't get the value out of that product to be able to pay you what you would need to get to make it worth your time and worth having the land in something other than cover crops. Absolutely. So that was that was my focus for for a long time was um, was doing exactly that. And, it you know, it was it was going really well. Uh, and if I had, had been a little bit more bold and had been uh, enjoying it a little bit more, I probably would have, you know, really pushed it. And I would be still doing it today because it, it certainly was profitable. So talk to me about that. I mean, you said if you had been a little bit more bold, if you had been enjoying it a little bit more, what was it that that held you back from making that leap at that time? 
you know, part of it is just the nature of who I am. I'm not a bold, aggressive person um, unless I'm on the soccer pitch. So that was something that I struggled with for a really long time as I started and then developed my farm was just being a bit more bold and aggressive enough to, um, you know, move ahead and market more aggressively or, you know, plant more thinking, you know, I, the chefs are liking this. I'll be able to sell more. Um, I've all, I've, you know, I guess I'm, I'm a bit conservative when it comes to, um, to the farming activities that I've been doing. And I think this just goes to, goes to kind of who I am, um, as a person. And in terms of the enjoyment, you know, uh, I think a lot of that has to do with when I started my farm, I was under the very naive and foolish assumption that I was going to be able to build a farm that was going to be primarily built around my labor and my two sons as they grew older. I was really uh, afraid of and uninterested in being an employer. And, you know, it doesn't take you too long as you get into vegetable farming unless you're, you know, doing, you know, a lot of hoop house stuff and microgreens and things like that where you can get make a lot of money off a really small space. It doesn't take you long to realize that if you're going to, you know, if you want to earn thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, that you're talking about a much larger farm and you're talking about employees. And... Well, I actually had fairly positive experiences with my first uh, employee that I had on my farm. I hired an, a neighbor woman, uh, a woman that had been a stay-at-home mom that had an empty nest and was looking for something to do. And she was awesome. Uh, ter- terrific worker. Um, was also just, you know, um, stunning to have another adult to work with on the farm after, you know, doing it all myself, plus with two young boys who were doing it very reluctantly. Um, it was <laughs> really pleasant to have an adult on the farm to talk to. Um, so while I had a positive experience, experience with that, I really didn't want to, to go any further and, and be an employee manager. Um, not something that I enjoyed doing. And so I just recognized that about myself. And, you know, the other thing that is my weakness when it comes to running a farm or really, you know, having a desk, uh, or, you know, living in a house is organization. And if you're going to grow a business and start having employees, uh, you need to be really well organized and you need to be a really good manager. And I'm not, I'm just not a terribly well organized. Um, you know, I've tried, I've gone, been to any number of your little seminars, Chris, where you talk about tips to be better organized and stay on top of things. And I just continue to struggle with (laughs) with those things. I always, I always wish that I could just wave a magic wand over the audience in there. Cause I know that nobody comes to a seminar like that, except out of a certain amount of pain in their lives, you know, and not that I'm the most perfectly organized person. I think it's one of the reasons why I like to talk about it because it's something I struggle with on an ongoing basis, but, um, it is, it's a huge challenge. And it's something that if you don't fundamentally have a, a tendency to do that, it's not easy just to make it up on the fly. The other thing that I've come to realize, Chris, is that I think, I think I was happiest as a farmer when I was a farm employee. 
I worked for a couple farms before, uh, well, kind of um, before and during graduate school. And reflecting back on that time, I was much happier with someone else directing the show. And, you know, I was, I think farm employees are farmers. Um, they're not farm owners, um, but they're farmers. They're doing farm work. Um, and I was pretty happy doing that. Um, someone else organizing the day and figuring out that this task and this task and this task need to be done and we need to prioritize this and here's the tools that you need for this job and go do it. And I can immerse myself in the the work of farming very fluidly. I can just lose myself in hand weeding carrots and just do it for a long while. Well, I can't do it as long as I used to be able to because I'm old and my body creaks and groans. Um, I guess that's another reality is that I kind of waited um, until, you know, more middle age to start and develop my farm. And while there are some exceptions to this, um, people who have remained, uh, you know, flexible and uh, vibrant into older age, vegetable farming is really, um, it's hard on your body. And having young knees and a young back and more youthful energy is not insignificant. Yeah. And I mean, even just the youthful energy thing, I think is, I mean, I, when I look back on the years when, when I was a beginning farmer on my own and, and even working for other farms and just how much time I could put in, in a day. And of course, then you've got kids and you, you talked about having your sons growing older. How old are your sons now? 19 and 15. Yeah. Which that, that takes a lot of time and it takes a different sort of time than having a two-year-old and a four-year-old does. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, another part of that was, you know, I, I had some s seasons where I was struggling with, you know, sciatica, with back pain. And while when I was younger, I felt like I could work on my knees all day long, uh, that evaporated. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that, all of that, all of those quality of life issues and, and physical, you know, the, the physical issues were, were part of the equation in terms of deciding to, to scale back. I know that sometimes... In our community, being a part-time farmer is seen as a as a failure. It's seen as not realizing your full potential, or I might even say not living the dream. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. Have you reconciled with that? You know, I think I finally am, Chris. And 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 actually, just recently, <laughs> just recently, kind of. Um, you know, because I even even though this decision to kind of not leave the university has has been pretty much a, a solid decision for quite a while, I think I think I was still kind of in denial and still hoping that you know something would happen that would that would make it possible for me to to live this dream that I had um, that started you know quite a long time ago in terms of, of in terms of owning and running a farm. But I've really you know I've 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 reconciled with it, and you know the reality in our country is that. It's what is it? Something like ninety-five percent of farms in our country, regardless of size, have off-farm income. And you know, on a lot of those farms, uh, the primary reason for that is for healthcare insurance. But you know, how many how many farms do we have where, where that are you know complete full-time farms? So I think it's okay. And you know, I'm still growing good good food. Um, I'm trying to my darndest to run it as a business. I'm not, you know, 
turning it into a hobby and undercutting my my full-time farming neighbors in the community that are serving the same markets. So I feel like I can I can live with it. So to turn to the more to the more practical side then. So you've got these three crops, garlic, peppers, and carrots. Are those crops that form the backbone of what you're growing or is that all that you're growing commercially? Yeah, that's the backbone. Um, there are some other things that are being grown, um, some other varieties of hot peppers that I've started growing <clears throat> for wholesale markets. And then the carrots is the the lion's share of that winter storage sales that I do. That's the direct market sales. But I'm also growing shallots and beets um, and onions, a little smattering of fall crops, uh, leeks and uh, spinach things like that. So I basically have, you know, I have a wholesale garlic operation because I'm wholesaling that to another farm, wholesale hot peppers that I'm wholesaling to either a distributor or to processing. And then I have this kind of fall market garden that's direct sales through the wintertime. Although again, I grow enough of the carrots that I'm wholesaling some of those as well. Tell me a little bit about how you actually do that direct marketing through your, through your workplace and through Karen's workplace. Yeah, what we've what we've done is it's kind of like a a free choice CSA kind of thing, uh, and that people get a box of, uh, of of produce, but they choose, and they don't have to choose every week. So what we've done is we've created a Google Doc form that we send out on a weekly basis, and anybody that wants produce fills out the form. Presto, I've got a spreadsheet with what people have ordered with their name. And boy, thanks to all the little um, add-ons that you can use with Google Doc Forms. Um, I've actually got it set up now where for a while we were we were doing that and then people were paying as they bought produce. And that was kind of a nightmare, um, tracking people down and making sure that they had paid and you know, a lot of it was happening at my wife's school and, you know, teachers would pass by my wife in the hallway and give her some money and say, you know, <laughs> this is my vegetables this week. And, you know, she's, you know, rushing to class and then she comes home with this money and it's like, I don't remember who gave this to me. <laughs> um, so that was kind of a nightmare in terms of, of tracking payments. So what we're, we're not forcing this, but what we're encouraging our customers to do is to write a check for 50, a hundred, two hundred dollars and then they order against that. And then um, there's these really cool um, add-on programs to do Google Doc Forms. I don't know if you're familiar with those, Chris, or if anybody in the audience is, but I've got it set up now where um, I've got some formulas that are built into the spreadsheet so that the formulas copy down as soon as somebody uh, submits an order. So it's tallying things up. And then it's it's sending them an email with their what, how much they ordered and what their current remaining balance is. Wow. And it's really cool. <laughs> That's a really cool tool. And, and if you hadn't told me that that existed, I wouldn't have known that you could do that. Um, I mean, I, I would have maybe tried to do it. I know there's some apps out there called like, you know, Zapier and some other things like that. I could imagine spending days, weeks trying to figure something like this out. Can you point us to a resource for for doing just what you said? Oh boy. Um, I, I'm a spreadsheet, a little bit, a bit of a spreadsheet geek. And so I'm comfortable, um, 
with with Excel and increasingly with the Google Doc Sheets. So it does require a certain amount of savvy in terms of writing the formulas. Uh, for example, I have to write, I have to put in a formula where the spreadsheet, when somebody puts their name in, it immediately goes to uh, another sheet where I've got people's emails. And so that's what, you know, allows the system to then send a message to that person's email because they're not, the email is not getting submitted when they fill out the Google Doc form. So it requires a little bit of understanding of how spreadsheets work. And then it was, I don't know, it basically took me an evening um, when you, when you're in a, in, in, when you're in Google Doc Sheets, you can click, I think it's a, to tab, it's add-ons. And it takes you to a page where there's all these little app businesses that have created things that uh, fit with, with Google Doc Forms. And it was simple a matter of scrolling through those and finding one that did what I wanted it to do. Um, you know, I just actually did this, Chris, but the names of, that, of those add-on apps are, are escaping me. But this is something that I'm thinking about maybe putting something together um, as just a resource tool for growers based on the work that I do at the university. You know, you're familiar with the work that I've done creating the spreadsheet tool called Veggie Compass. And one of the things that I've done as a part of that effort was I created, it's actually a bit long and a bit dry, but I actually have a, a YouTube video that talks about creating a Google Doc form to track labor on your farm. And perhaps it's time for me to go in, go back to that and create a video on how to create a Google Doc form to take orders from customers. So I'll put that in my to-do list, Chris. Thanks for for uh, adding to my adding to my list. Glad I could help. I, you know, I wouldn't want you to get bored or anything. Uh, if you'll let us know when you come out with that, I'll make sure and include that in our weekly podcast newsletter. Then, when you do come out with that, okay, sounds good. Let's talk a little bit about how you're actually doing your production. You mentioned that you've got cover crops. Are you rotating those cover crops with your vegetables in kind of a in a weed control pattern? Is it is it sort of a catch as catch can thing? I would imagine that with three crops, it's a little bit easier to be very deliberate with your planning around cover crops. You know, I'm really glad that you said that, Chris, because this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. And you know, this gets back to this question of, of reconciling yourself as a part-time farmer. I also feel like I kind of need to defend myself and justify, justify my, my, you know, specialization. You know, and if you're not growing 40, 50 different vegetables, you're not a diversified farm, um, which really kind of flies in the face of conventional, you know, conventional farms grow, grow what? One crop? Maybe two. Maybe two. Yeah, that was, <laughs> you know, my neighbors put corn in every year, it seems like. Um, and, you know, I'm growing a smaller array of crops. But and I think I, I and again, I'm glad you mentioned it because I think having a smaller set of crops opens up incredible opportunities to actually be perhaps be a better farmer um, because it's just a simpler system in terms of plugging in uh, the, the crops into a logical, sustainable, um, rotation. Now, that being said, uh, the last several years have been hugely challenging for me in terms of getting cover crops in this fall in particular, it won't stop raining. (laughs) 
and it started raining uh, quite a while ago, and it's been next to impossible to plant cover crops this year. So I don't have nearly as much cover crops in as I plan to or had planned to, um, or certainly would like to at this time of this time of year. But yes, I rotate, um, those vegetable crops through, um, my, my system is based around a two year period of cover crops. So a field being in cover crops for two years, that being, um, a clover, a clover cover crop. Okay. And then coming out of that clover crop um, is the is the garlic, and what that allows, given that garlic is not planted until until the you know the very end of the year, it actually makes for a, a good time to transition from the clover to the garlic. Plus, you've got the nitrogen benefit for the for the garlic. So then the garlic comes out the next year in the middle of July, and then if I've got time and the weather's right, I'll put in some buckwheat. To do a quick buckwheat cover crop before planting um, a fall cover crop that will winter kill, usually oats and peas. And then the next spring, I can get in and do the peppers. And then that is followed by the carrots and the other fall crops that I do that just kind of get tossed in with the carrots. I mean, by that time, you're dealing with some pretty clean fields, and those peppers are a good crop for actually cleaning up those weeds even further to be ready for those carrots, not to have a nightmare. Exactly. When you plant so, those. Exactly. So that's that's the model. Um, could I say that I am 100% successful at meeting that model right now? No, but that's that's the model that I am working on and working toward. Now, with those crops, I mean, obviously, you're not managing, in terms of absolute acres, you're not managing huge quantities of garlic peppers or carrots. But relative to the size of your farm and relative to the size of your labor force, you're planting quite a bit of each of those things. Are you using any specialized equipment to get that work done? Well, before I answer the question about equipment, I want to say that one thing that I really like about those three crops is that, you know, some of them have peaks of when, you know, when you need to have a lot of labor, you know, for the garlic, you know, the scapes have to be taken off in the middle of June. But, you know, before that and after that, you know, there's some cultivation. Uh, we usually do one pretty intensive uh, hand hand weeding, hand hoeing. But then, you know, it's basically set until harvest. And then for a few days, you know, that's all you're doing is harvest. But then, then you're done um, until it's time to crack and plant. And, you know, I'm able to fit in the transplanting of the peppers into that, um, you know, just before the scapes come off, I'm transplanting the peppers. And then the peppers are kind of, you know, they need some hoeing periodically, but they're, you know, fine until they start producing. And then it's just a weekly harvest. And then the carrots are planted in July. And what I try to do is I try to plant those carrots in a way that allows me to do that you know, that real finicky hand weeding that no matter how good of a carrot grower you are and how good you are at managing weeds, you end up doing, you know, doing one intensive hand weeding of carrots. And so I try to fit that around the garlic harvest. And then the carrots um, are kind of set, maybe a a tractor cultivation, maybe a wheel hoeing um, of those. 
Uh, but then, then they're basically done until harvest. And typically I'll do my harvest of carrots in late October after we've had some frosts, which this year didn't happen. Completely lacking. Um, and then and then that happened. I get that done before I have to do the garlic planting, which I actually um, have shifted to planting my garlic as late as possible. Um, and so that's typically the first week of November. This year, we were so wet that we had a, a quote-unquote dry spell. To call it dry is a bit of a euphemism, but it was dry enough, barely dry enough for me to till an area and plant plant the garlic a couple weeks ago, which is earlier than I like to plant it. But I figured I just had to try because we were, we were faced with a, a two inch rain event coming. <laughs> so why have you chosen to move your garlic planting so late? Um, because I've been successful, you know, the garlic has done well being planted late. Um, I know a farm that kind of went by the book one year and planted in mid October. And then we had a fall like this. And by the time it finally started getting cold, their garlic was four inches out of the ground. And I've always been really apprehensive about having garlic sprout uh, before wintertime. You know, all you want it to do is to start rooting. And I also have stopped mulching my garlic. Uh, I used to mulch because that's what everybody said you were supposed to do. And then I heard from another farm that they weren't mulching anymore and were having fine results. And so I've stopped mulching and um, just have found success in planting it late. And not mulching. I mean, here in southern Wisconsin, I mean, you're not we're not talking about down south here. This is a you know, we've got a pretty, pretty darn cold winter. Well, you know, Chris, as an example of why I think that's a safe thing to do is nearly every year in the spring when I go out to the fields to see the little garlics poking out of the ground because it's the first thing that that happens. Um, It's comes up so early. And nearly every year, as I'm walking over to the field, I see a clove or a half dozen cloves that were dropped or, you know, spilled out of the buckets that were just lying in the grass at the edge of the field. And they're trying to put down roots and trying to sprout after just lying out in the open, being covered with snow, being, you know, freezing and thawing, um, being encased in ice. And they're they're still alive. <laughs> garlic, like everything else, has that will to live. I mean, it's in and if you think about where garlic comes from, right? The, I mean, it, it's it comes from the steppes of Russia. It comes from the the mountains of Afghanistan. Right. Probably a Wisconsin winter. It, it sort of looks at it and laughs. Really, <laughs> that's what I think. And I should note that the, uh, the variety I grow is German extra hardy. Okay. So, you know, there's probably there's probably some varieties out there that you need to be a little bit more careful with. But with German extra hardy. I'm completely stress free about not mulching. Well, and talk about lightening the workload in the spring that not having to remove that mulch certainly makes the weeding or the cultivating much easier. Yeah. You know, and, and back when I was mulching, I actually did not remove my mulch. I know that some farms do that. But um, I always left it on. Um, at the time, I wasn't set up to do any kind of tractor cultivation. And so it was just a, a means to try to reduce the amount of hand weeding that I was, that I was doing. 
So anyway, you asked about equipment, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I was, and I was actually just going to make you pivot back to that here because, and, and there's, and I guess there's two things I want to ask about equipment. I mean, one is, nope. I guess there's three things that I want to make sure that we get to about equipment here, John. One is, are you doing anything special because you're able to focus on these three crops and because they do each represent a large point load for you in your operation? I'm also curious what you've got for equipment overall on a two-acre vegetable farm, as well as I want to make sure we we get into your equipment business. So let's start Let's start at the beginning. Have you made investments in equipment that's specific to the crops that you're growing? Um, yeah, I have, although nothing hugely significant in terms of, you know, capital outlay. You know, I'm, you know, I'm typical in that I have a tractor that's, uh, it's a 52 horse international diesel. Um, I have a Perfecta field cultivator that I adore that I use with that. I have a rotavator. I have a Williams tool system cultivator, which combines a couple toolbars with a springtime rake. I believe they're only sold by Market Farm Implements. So if you go to the Market Farm Implement, you uh, your listeners will be able to see what a Williams tool system cultivator looks like. Um, I got that used from a grower that was uh, deciding to not grow vegetables anymore and just do um, livestock. And I use the, this, that cultivator in a, a couple different ways. Um, I've, I don't have um, the capacity or the tools to do really fine cultivation, really close to the row cultivation, but I do use that tool to, you know, clean up my wheel tracks and cultivate the centers of beds. Most of the, the crops that I'm growing um, are just two row. I grow the peppers and the garlic and the carrots and just a two row per bed system. How wide of a bed? Um, it's actually um, pretty narrow. It's uh, 40 inches from, um, that's not center to center, but that's the width of the actual bed. Okay. Uh, I never liked leaning way into like a five foot, six foot bed. Um, and I know that I could be making better use of my land by not having as many wheel tracks and having wider beds. But I, I never liked uh, to do the leaning in and um, dealing with with multiple, multiple rows. So um, so and then the other thing I um, and I, I use the the springtime cultivator on that to cultivate the garlic early in the year. Um, and I do, uh, that I cultivate the carrots with that. But then the other thing I do with that, um, Williams tool system cultivator is that when I bought it, it had a couple really big cultivating shanks that came with it. And after a couple years of experimenting with using a borrowed plastic mulch lifter and a homemade root lifter, implement, which never worked for me. I didn't have the horsepower and the, the right soil to get it to go deep enough. I use the Williams tool system cultivator with these big shanks to undercut my garlic, Huh? which for many, many, you know, most of the years that I've grown garlic, it's all been hand dug as many as 10,000 heads, which is like a quarter acre, which is a lot of hand digging, especially when you're the only hand digger because your two sons are too young to get the shovel in deep enough because they're they're too tiny and don't right. weigh enough. <laughs> um, and it's especially a lot of work in a year that's a drought when the ground's hard as concrete and you're trying to dig the garlic in, in July. Um, 
Anyway, so I've been really delighted that I discovered this other use for this Williams tool system cultivator to undercut the garlic. It doesn't go deep enough for me to do my carrots. And so I'm still hand digging carrots. So that's a, a nice multi-purposing of a tool there. I like that. Yeah. And then um, some other tools that I would um, highlight is uh, I used the Hatfield transplanter that Johnny sells, the red tube that comes three different sizes. And, uh, you know, it has handles. And when you have the handles spread apart, the bottom of the tool has a point in it and you punch that into the soil. It can also punch through plastic mulch. I don't use plastic mulch on my farm. Um, and we can transplant peppers, um, and I, I grow some tomatoes as well, although the tomatoes is becoming less and less every year. Uh, but we do do a you know fairly sizable amount of the peppers, and it, the pepper transplanting goes phenomenally fast. Uh, we can really move along with that Hatfield transplanter. I have my son on the opposite side of the bed, which, again, is not a very wide bed, so it's not hard to, for him to toss the transplants down the chute from the other side of the bed. And we move along at a really fast clip using that Hatfield transplanter. And then, you know, we do have to go back and either hand water or lay down drip tape because they're not being watered in, you know, like the people who have a water wheel transplanter. So I really like the Hatfield. Um, the other pieces of equipment that are key on my farm, um, you know, the, one of the things I like the most is my harvest cart. And I know at least some of your listeners have the exact same harvest cart because there's a bunch of us here in Wisconsin and maybe some farms in, in Minnesota that have them as well. It's a design that was that was developed by Dan Gunther at Common Harvest Farm. Uh, it's an all aluminum square made of square aluminum tubing. And it's designed, the, the kind that I have is designed to fit five of the black plastic bulb crates that so many vegetable growers are using as harvest crates. And it's lightweight, it's maneuverable, it can haul a lot of produce, and it's just a workhorse. We're just using it all the time. It can also, you know, you can use it to haul fence posts out to the field. You can use it to haul small hay bales, um, use it to haul transplants out to the field. We use, we're using it all the time. Yeah, and that is a really slick card. I've seen that in use on a couple of different farms. There's actually plans. Uh, the blueprints to build one are actually available online. And they're available on a website that I created a long, long time ago um, that I called Market Farm Toolbox. And my ambition was to populate the website with all kinds of information about cool tools and, and things. And unfortunately, while I've had lots of ideas about what to post there, I've been a terrible um, poster. So there's not a whole lot there. But the aluminum harvest card plans are there. MarketFarmToolbox.com. All right. And we'll make sure that we have a link to that in the show notes. So, you know, if you're driving to deliveries this morning, please don't stop and or please don't try to write that down while you're driving. OK. Oh, I, the other the other really huge piece that I recently purchased was uh, given that I was increasing the amount of carrots that I was growing and starting to do more wholesale. Uh, I invested in a in a root washer or what some people call a barrel washer. What kind of barrel washer did you invest in? Um, you know, I don't remember the name or the brand name of it, but it's the one that has a clear plastic tube as opposed to the wooden slats. It's, it has a green cage around it. Who did you get that from? Well, um, that's actually an interesting story, Chris, in that uh, I had been conversing off and on with a neighboring farm who was thinking about buying one. And I said, hey, you know, let's let's buy one together and share. We're close enough. 
Um, you know, I, I like to wash all my carrots at once and I store my carrots clean through the winter. You hear, you know, you know, the old adage is that dirty carrots store better. Uh, I don't really necessarily believe that. Plus I don't want to spend time in my unheated barn trying to clean carrots during the winter. So I clean them as I harvest them and put them away clean in perforated liner bags in bushel and knife boxes. So they're basically ready to deliver wholesale or I, you know, I bag things up out of those boxes through the wintertime. So anyway, my, my neighbor and I were going to go in on one together and then a bunch of time went by and we hadn't talked to each other. And then I contacted him and said, Hey, you still want to do that? And he said, you mean buy one of these? He, he, he texted me back on his cell phone. He said, you mean one of these? And he just had one delivered the day before um, that he bought through uh, Reuters in Michigan. Reuters? Reuters. Reuters in Michigan. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, he and I are, are now sharing that. Um, and it's at his place right now, but I'm getting it back next week. So uh, when my carrots come out of the ground, they'll be all washed up. And that is that's a nice unit. I've I've looked at that on a couple of different places and really been impressed with with how it's put together. And I, I like the fact that it's got the guards on it, too. You know, it's got that cage around it that I think makes it a little bit safer than some of the ones that have a lot of really exposed moving parts. Yeah, there's that. And then, you know, I'm probably always going to be a farm that's exempt from the Food Safety Modernization Act. But, you know, we're all supposed to be doing doing the food safety thing. And so I wasn't crazy about buying a root washer with the wooden slats in terms of being a uh, washing it and sanitizing it. Yeah. And I, you know, we could, we could probably go down a, a real uh, rabbit hole with that. I would just say that that wood is actually just to be clear, not explicitly con- excluded by the FDA as a surface. And, and actually there's a lot of good research out there that shows that that wood is a perfectly good sanitary surface to use, um, especially for crops like carrots. You might not want to be using it with your salad mix, but even that, I think there's an argument to be made. Um, so just I'll throw that out there and then we'll just leave it lay because there's a there's a lot that we could talk about in that regard. And with that, I think this would be a good time for us to stop, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with more from John Hendrickson with Stone Circle Farm and a whole lot of other hats that he wears. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast has been provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do, produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil, and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found out what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st to December 21st. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992 vermontcompost.com. Additional support for this episode provided by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. 
Farmers Web brings greater efficiency to how you work with your buyers, saving you time and increasing the number of buyers your farm can work with overall. Use this software to inform your buyers about your farm, your product availability, and delivery days and zones. You can also enforce order minimums, lead times, and more. With Farmers Web, your customers can place their orders online or you can take their orders in other ways and enter them in yourself. You can define payment terms for different buyers, give select buyers special pricing, and generate pick lists, packing slips, and product catalogs for your customers. You can keep track of payments that you receive by check or COD, or buyer payments by credit card go right into your bank account. Farmers Web can even help you coordinate deliveries with neighboring farms. A flat monthly fee means that no amount of orders or number of buyers affects your costs, and you can pause, cancel, or switch plan types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. There is no annual commitment. Farmers Web is available to farms, farmer cooperatives, and local food artisans nationwide. FarmersWeb.com all right, and we're back with John Hendrickson from Stone Circle Farm. John, I now that we're back here, I, I actually want to start off not by asking you another question about Stone Circle Farm, but by asking you about your equipment company, Small Farm Works. Yeah, so we created that business because of, um, well, my wife and I went to Japan to live for a year from August 04 to August 05. And uh, during that year, uh, anecdotally, my farm was put to bed in cover crops and wasn't farmed for a year. I'd actually tried to find someone to run the farm for a year, but um, that didn't end up happening. So our, um, our fields rested for a year in cover crops, and we spent a year living in Japan. And I was basically kind of a stay-at-home dad while we were there. My wife was doing international relations work in what was becoming one of Madison's sister cities in Japan, Obihiro, Japan. Uh, Madison has several other sister cities in other locations in the world. Um, so we were living there and, you know, I was cooking and cleaning and, and uh, actually continuing to do some work for the university as well. Um, but then, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm here in Japan. I got to, you know, learn about farming here in Japan. And, you know, they've got so many small farms. I bet they've got some, you know, interesting equipment that I might be think was cool. So I started going online and, and seeing what I could find. And I fell on this web page, which had a, a rather small, uh, rather not high definition photograph of this orange tool. And I waited till my wife came home and she came home and was like, well, you know, what does this say? What, is, what does this say that this machine does here? <laughs> and she, you know, with uh, not, you know, she, my wife is pretty proficient in Japanese, but she doesn't know a lot of art, uh, agricultural terminology in Japanese. And so she tried to decipher what it was is, you know, it's this paper plants going into the ground pulling machine um, or something like that. So I was like, well, that sounds interesting. Let's try to, you know, find out more. Well, it turned out that the company that made it was in the town where we were living. And so, nice. yeah, coincidence number one. So we set up a meeting with them and we met with them and they told us a little bit about it. And they said, but what you really should do is you should come to our, our R&D facility and see it in action. And so they arranged to pick us up at the train station in town because it was going to be way too complicated for us to find their R&D facility. And so we left our little home uh, on the one side of town and went all the way downtown to the train station. And then they proceeded to drive us back like two blocks away from where our house was. 
And back behind all these old industrial buildings was this greenhouse and this little field, which you couldn't see from the road, which is why they said it was going to be hard for us to find, even though I, you know, a couple <laughs> kicks of the soccer ball and I could have been there from my house. So they, I saw this machine being used and my jaw just dropped. Um, it's a incredibly ingenious little system that they've developed. And it involves planting into a honeycomb of paper pots. And what's unique about the paper pots is that they're not individual cells. Well, they're individual cells, but they're connected to one another in a chain that winds its way through the flat. And because the, the paper, because it's a paper chain, the plants feed themselves through the transplanter into the ground without you touching them. So you just walk with this machine, pulling it uh, by hand, and the plants go on the ground, boom, 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 boom. So I immediately told them that I wanted one to take back to the U.S. And I also told them that I knew that there were other farms that could utilize this technology in the United States. And they were frankly kind of skeptical about that because, you know, what gets broadcast about American agriculture overseas is, you know, the large scale agriculture. You know, they see pictures of huge combines and, uh, you know, huge planting machines and combines and things. Uh, and they don't know about this understory of American agriculture, all these small farms, because, you know, it just doesn't make the news um, as much overseas. So they were pretty skeptical, but um, I started letting people know about it back in 2006. And slowly but surely, we've been getting the word out, mainly by word of mouth, because we haven't wanted to spend a lot of money on advertising. Uh, in this day and age with the internet and a YouTube video, you don't actually have to do much paid advertising. I don't f feel like anymore. And uh, so we've been doing that for, for I guess, 10 years now. And actually, our next inventory shipment is arriving tomorrow morning. What kinds of crops do people use these for? Well, it was originally developed in Japan for alliums, for onions. And they grow a lot of onions in Japan. And one thing that they grow a lot of is what they call naganegi. And any of your uh, Japanese-speaking listeners will know that that stands for long onion. And a long onion is basically a scallion, although they grow scallions in a very different way in Japan. They do grow them like we do, um, but they, um, they also grow scallions like we grow leeks in terms of either trenching, putting them in a trench, or hilling them so that they have a really long, blanched, uh, white shaft and they grow those in really large quantities. And so the, you know, the farmers needed a way to transplant those um, quickly. And while they're growing in, in, you know, a lot of, there's still, you know, most farms in Japan are quite small. And so there's still a lot of hand tools and smaller scale uh, farms around. And so they developed a system for growing onions, uh, but it can grow all kinds of other, other things. What it's basically limited to, are crops that can be have a relatively tight in-row spacing because your in-row spacing is determined by the length of the paper chain that you're planting with. And right. there are three lengths of paper chains that are available, two inches between plants, four inches between plants, and six, six inches between plants. So, you know, it's great for all the allium crops, onions, leeks, shallots, scallions. It's also can be used to plant different types of greens. Basically, any kind of green you'd want to transplant with it, you could. 
Um, I have a lot of customers doing um, baby or midsize lettuce heads with it, yeah, particularly Salanova. Um, then there's a whole other range of things. Um, I grow spinach with it. Um, I grow beets with it. And a lot of my customers do as well. It's I really like it for peas and beans um, to get a jump on the weeds and get a jump on the season. I have customers doing all manner of cut flower crops with it. And I couldn't give you a complete list of all the cut flowers that you can do with it because I'm not a cut flower grower. Uh, it can do brassicas really well. Uh, the limitation on brassicas, again, is the row spacing. I do a little bit of kohlrabi with my, my fall market garden, and it's great for that. I use the four-inch space pots for kohlrabi. You could also use the six-inch space pots. But I also, quite frankly, grow cabbage and broccoli, plant cabbage and broccoli using um, the six-inch uh, length chain, I just skip every other cell and then I have 12 inches. Oh, I mentioned you can also do herbs. Um, it's great for basil. Um, I have customers doing cilantro with it and dill. Um, and the other uh, crop that I have people doing is fennel. It's all, all seem like, like things that would work really well in that system. And I, I like the idea of the paper pot transplanter. How easy is it to, to mark out some straight rows with that? That seems like, to me, like the biggest challenge. Well, I would argue that it's no different than trying to get straight rows with your Earthway transplanter or your Yang uh, cedar, um, which is something I use. I didn't mention that in my equipment list. Um, I have a Yang um, precision cedar that I really like for carrots. So I would argue that it's not that much difficult, more difficult to do than with a push cedar. And, you know, there's various marking tools that you can use. You know, if you're rotivating beds, you can put some clamps or something on the back of your rotivator pan to draw some lines um, so that you have parallel straight rows. Um, you know, you can put down stakes and string. Um, you can use, you know, any kind of marking device. Um, I This year utilized my earthway cedar to mark rows for the garlic that I was planting because I'm starting to do more and more tractor cultivation. And last year I wasn't as precise as I would like to be on, on my garlic rows. And in part that was because I had some helpers doing it that weren't as good as me as, as making straight parallel rows. Um, so this year I used my earthway with the uh, little, you know, the, the thing that kicks out to the side to mark the next row. Yep. And I use that to mark the rows for where I wanted uh, the, I had some people help me plant garlic this year because of my uh, impending ACL knee surgery. And I can't spend a lot of time on my knees these days. So I think there's, I think there's ways to get around that in terms of, of getting straight and parallel rows. Is this something that people are using on a tractor or is this strictly a, a, a hand tool at this time? It's almost exclusively a hand pulled tool currently in the U.S., uh, that's how it comes. Uh, it has a handle and wheels, and it's to be pulled by hand. And I get any number of inquiries uh, every year about, well, you know, can I buy two of those and attach them to a toolbar? And while that would certainly be possible, you know, this thing was built and engineered as a hand-pulled tool. And I question how durable it would last if you had it on the back of a toolbar and you were kind of jerking it around, you know, making turns and raising and lowering it um, on a tractor. The company in Japan is working on a tractor mounted version. And I'm kind of consulting with them on that because I've told them that I think I could, you know, expand the marketplace for the paper pots if they developed a tool that was designed for tractors. So I'm working with them on that. And I also um, am 
and I'll put this out there for uh, the listening audience. Um, I'm looking for somebody that might be interested in working with me on manufacturing a tractor-mounted version here in the U.S. Great. Now, okay. I said almost all. Now, I do have a customer that has the uh, Drongen laydown crawler tractor. Right. And uh, he has the two-row, there's a two-row paper pot transplanter, and he has a two-row uh, unit on his lay down drung and work uh, platform. Which is pretty different, I think, than putting it on the back of a three-point hitch. Absolutely uh, different. You know, you just got a completely different set of dynamics there. Absolutely. So, all right. And that, again, that's at smallfarmworks.com, right? That's correct. What kind of soil mix are you using in the in the paper pots? Is there are, are there any specific requirements that are different about that than than what you would be using otherwise? The only the only requirement that I would that I would suggest is that if you have a potting mix that has a lot of twigs or little pieces of bark or anything you know that's going to get in the way, it can be problematic because the paper pot cells are quite small. And so uh, it can be a little aggravating if you've got a potting mix that has an excessive amount of that kind of material in it, and you may want to screen screen it out. Uh, that being said, I never bothered to do any screening with the potting mix that I use. I use Vermont compost, and there's you know there's some twigs and things in that because of the compost part of that potting mix. But I've I love Vermont compost, and I've been using it for a really long time, and get great results from it. It's 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 interesting to me how many places you I mean you know as a as a farmer and and as a working with CIAS and working on projects like small farm works but these places where you've really interjected uh, bringing some real value I think to the to the farming system overall that we know here in in this country and in North America one of the now. You were here at graduate school here at the University of Wisconsin in Madison at the same time that I was here as an undergrad, and we knew each other in in that realm. But where I think the first time we really worked together closely was on that grower to grower project where you that you referenced earlier, where you were organizing that, and my farm, Rock Spring Farm, was was one of the farms that was included in that. Have you done more work on the grower to grower project or those types of things since the early part of the two thousands? Yeah, you know. The, the study that I did way back, and again, we collected data for three years back in the early 2000s. It was uh, growing seasons 2002, 2003, 2004. And, you know, for a long time now, that study has been kind of the only reference point, you know, kind of public reference point for some information about the financials of running a small-scale organic vegetable farm. And, you know, for quite a while... You know, I talked uh, about those numbers and I continue to talk about them. But, you know, now they're they're over well over a decade old. Um, You know, it's even uh, what, 12 years from the last year that we collected the data from 2004 to 2016. So I've been really curious about where farms are with the financials. You know, we we found that a lot of farms were grossing. Um, twelve to fifteen thousand dollars per acre back then, and there, there's variability based on scale. Smaller scales gross more than than larger scale farms, but a lot of farms were in that kind of twelve to fifteen range. And I've been wondering where where we are with that. And I've had conversations with some of the people in that project and with others that suggest that those numbers have indeed gone up. 
Um, but what we don't know is exactly, you know, where we are with that. And so with some colleagues at the university and with um, a nonprofit in the Madison area, the Fair Share CSA Coalition, we currently have a project to uh, collect a new round of financial data. And we're actually wanting it to be more than just this snapshot research project. Um, you know, we don't want to just collect data on one year or two years or even three years. What we're hoping to build is actually an ongoing service, uh, which is what's available to a lot of our conventional farming neighbors. You know, if you're a corn grower or a, or a dairy producer, um, you can pretty quickly find out what last year's average costs of production were for corn or for producing milk. Um, but you can't do that for vegetables. Um, no one knows exactly how much it costs, you know, per acre to grow diversified vegetables. And, you know, there's a there's a lot more variability. So it's a difficult number to pin down. But I don't think that's a reason to not try to gather information that can be useful to people. So what we're trying to build is uh, basically a, a survey tool that growers will fill out on an annual basis and then they'll have access to reports. And you know, the big goal is that if we get lots and lots of people filling this out, it will facilitate people being able to kind of drill down into that data. Um, so maybe I'm curious about what other five-acre CSA farms are grossing per acre and what their costs are per acre and uh, how, you know, what percentage of their pay of their uh, gross is going to payroll? How many full-time equivalent employees do they have on that five acre farm? Um, maybe I'm curious about other farms in a particular market location, or maybe I'm a three acre farm thinking about growing to a, a 10 acre farm. And I'm curious about what a 10 acre farm looks like in terms of the financials, how much investments involved and what is the labor and, um, What's going to happen to my in my profit margin if I grow to that to that scale? So we're really wanting to get um, everybody and anybody involved in this project. It started as a Wisconsin-oriented project, but we're willing to have people from across the country or even, I suppose, outside the country. I'm sure you've got international listeners, Chris. So um, the the survey uh, we created it last last winter, and we actually got it out in the field, so to speak, the tail end of last winter. And we got a, a small number of people to fill it out well before they were too busy in their greenhouses and in the field. Um, but we, you know, quickly realized that we weren't going to get anybody to fill it out. Well, we didn't realize we knew we weren't going to get anybody to fill it out during the summertime. So we closed it and we're going to be reopening it after Thanksgiving here at the end of thanks, uh, end of November. And I'm basically putting it out there that anybody, uh, Anybody that is interested is uh, welcome to fill out this survey. Uh, we actually have some funding to pay $50 for people to fill out the survey. If we run out of money, we're just going to write more grants or contact a foundation and try to get some more money to make sure everybody that fills out the survey gets paid. So get in there and, and fill that survey out early and fill it out often, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and now this this show is going to go live well before Thanksgiving, and so what I'm John and I talked about this over the break. So what we're going to do is, you know, I do the weekly newsletter that goes out about the podcast, and so when the survey goes live, we'll include the link in that newsletter, and then 
we'll also at that point update the show notes uh, for the page and include that link at that time. So that's just something to watch out for. Put it on your calendar or, or better yet, sign up for the newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and that way you'll you'll get that notification when it does go live. I think I'm right, John, that when I say this, the more people that fill this out, the more valuable that tool becomes. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I kind of, I got approval um, just a couple of days ago from the, the head, uh, the professor who's the, the lead of this project saying, are you sure you want me to put this out on the Farmer to Farmer podcast? And he said, go for it. Because yeah, we recognize that this is only going to be, uh, you know, garbage into a database, garbage out of a database. So, um, but also quantity in and, you know, better, the more quantity we have, the more of this kind of drilling down that we'll be able to do, because we are ensuring that people's privacy is going to be maintained. And if we only have a handful of people fill this out um, and there's enough, you know, there's not really, you know, we're not asking for your address or, you know, where you're located, what, what have you, but, you know, we're worried, you know, we want to make sure that people are not going to be able to drill into this data and think, oh, I bet you that's my neighbor Frank's farm right there because I happen to know that, you know, he's at this acreage and I know he's gross because I've had this conversation with him. So uh, the more people to fill this out, the better. The other thing to say is that, you know, we really want people to be truthful and honest in filling this out because, you know, we want this to be a useful tool. So we don't want want people to fill this out and and put in bogus numbers. Um, And the other thing that I'll just be brutally honest about is that this is not a, you know, a five minute, 10 minute, or even a half hour survey. It'll take you some time to fill out um, because we want to be able to give people some pretty detailed, valuable information about the financials of running a small farm. Uh, And so it's going to take a while for you to fill out. Um, You'll need your schedule F from the year that you're going to put in. And we're allowing, we're going to allow people to put in data from either 2016, 2015, or 2014 this winter. So you can fill it out multiple times, or you could just fill it out once and you could pick which year you have um, data for. And uh, you will be getting an access code. Um, There'll be kind of a pre-survey and then we'll be in contact with you with an access code. So if you're worried about the length of a survey or you don't have time to fill it out completely, you'll be able to save your save your record and go back into it at a later time to, to fill it out. Great. And I, and I just want to say as somebody who, who works a lot with financials and, and my wife is involved with, with financials, with farmers, both in, in organic vegetables, but also in a lot of other industries in farming as well. And it is a real barrier for folks in this business that we don't have good financial information. It makes it much harder to go to the bank and get a loan, makes it much harder to feel like this is something that's legitimate when you're looking at it from the outside, because our industry simply doesn't have the data. And, you know, this is having this having this survey information is going to be good for you and it's going to be good for the for the industry as a whole. Right. So, the you being your listeners, not me. Right. Yes. You, the you being the listeners. Yeah. I, I mean, I like you, John, but, you know, I'm not <laughs> uh, great. So I also want to make sure before we go to the lightning round that I make a little bit of a plug here for the Wisconsin School for Beginning Market Growers, which is a class that you put on in January every year. That's right. Uh, I've been doing that program. Actually, Chris, can you guess when I the first year that I did that program? No. It was 1998. It's, wow. it's, it's been quite a while. Um, so it's a three-day intensive program for people who want to get started growing and selling vegetables. 
Uh, we've been doing it for a long time. When I first created that program, trying to find relevant information for people to grow small-scale organic vegetables was really hard to come by. But now there's just so much good information out there. Um, it's taught by experienced growers. I have three experienced growers that join me uh, in teaching the majority of the class. And then we have some special speakers that come in, including yours truly, Chris Blanchard, who joined us last year and will join us again to give a talk about food safety and the Food Safety Modernization Act. And then we have some other university faculty that come in uh, as well. But it's, it's, it's unique in that while I'm a big fan of, of conferences and workshops, you know, I, I go to the Moses Organic Conference every year and love it and similar conferences in other parts of the country and the state. And I love those. The, the one thing that I think sets apart the, the, the school that I run from those is that while when you're at a when you're at a conference and you you go to a workshop and you you hear from Chris Blanchard about how he does his record keeping on his farm, you only hear from Chris and you only hear from Chris about his record keeping. And over the three days of my grower school, you hear from the three grower instructors plus myself because I'm kind of a grower instructor in that program as well. You hear from each of us about how we do our record keeping and we do it differently. And you hear from each of us how we rotate our crops because we do it differently. And you hear from each of us, you know, how we've chosen to market our crops um, and what tools we have and the financials and our experience with hiring labor. And so you get a real holistic picture of multiple farms over the course of these three days. And that is relatively unique. You don't you don't tend to get that at uh, a day long workshop or at a conference that has uh, an hour or two hour um, workshops. And I'm not trying to you know diss that other model because you get tremendous amount of information about that there as well. But in terms of being a beginner and wanting to know what it takes to set up and run a vegetable farm, I think it's really important to get the whole holistic picture, which is what we try to do in the grower school. Well, and the other thing that you do that you don't get at a conference is that it really is a curriculum put together from the beginning to the end of the process. So it's, you know, it's something that's following an arc rather than a workshop here and a workshop there. You know, there's there's a it makes sure that you've got all of the information that you need or at least to know all of the questions that you need to be asking as you're getting your farm started. Right. right. And, you know, you know, it's three days and. You know, it obviously takes more than three days to learn what it takes to farm. And so we can't cover every topic in extreme detail, but uh, we give a we give people a lot over the over the three days. So that program is going to be the first weekend of January. It's the 6th, 7th and 8th. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, it is held on the UW-Madison campus. And while it's called the Wisconsin School for Beginning Market Growers, you don't have to be a Wisconsin resident to, to take it. We every year we have people from. Uh, from further afield, typically the the neighboring states to Wisconsin, and I should uh, I should mention Chris, I, I you know you gave uh, gave me a nice opportunity to plug that program. Uh, we do also have other schools uh, that we run at the Center for Integrated Ag Systems. I have colleagues that do a school for beginning dairy and livestock farmers, and uh, I have a parallel program to the Market Growers School focused on cut flowers that we are going to be offering in. February, the weekend after uh, Valentine's Day, which I believe is the 18th and 19th, if I have my dates correctly. And then we also have a school for beginning apple growers, which is going to be in March. 
Great. And all of the all of those schools are have both organic and conventional growers involved in them, right? Um, that used to be the case for the grower school. I tried to balance uh, the growers because I figured I was going to have a mix of participants. Over time, it just was really obvious that virtually, you know, 90 to 100 percent of the participants in the class were interested in doing things, if not in a strictly organic way, then a very, very close to organic way. And so um, actually all the farms that are that are teaching now are certified organic in, in that program. That's not true for the Apple School. It's actually it's not very easy to find um, organic apple growers. So um, that program is balanced between an organic and a uh, IPM approach. Um, the cut flower program, there's not really too many flower growers that have chosen to be certified organic. There are plenty of flower growers that follow organic methods, but it's not usually worth their time and expense to get certified. But the growers that I have in that school are also following organic production methods. So, John, where would people go to get information about those schools? The Center for Integrated Ag- Agricultural Systems webpage, cias.wisc.edu. So with all of that, John, I think it's time to turn to the lightning round. So what's your favorite tool on the farm? Huh. So don't say paper pot transplanter. I, I'm not allowed to say paper pot transplanter. You're not allowed to say paper pot transplanter. You know, uh, for many, many years, uh, my answer to that question has been that aluminum harvest cart. And, you know, it, it, we already talked about it. So that's not very, it's kind of anticlimactic, but we can just leave it there and know that it's, know that it's right there. So that's great. And again, we'll have links to, to information about that harvest cart on our show notes. So um, now for somebody like you who really is, in the resource business for farmers, what's your favorite resource when you're looking to solve problems on your farm? Boy, you know, one of my go-to resources these days is uh, the local listserv for the Fair Share CSA Coalition, because I can immediately put out a question and, you know, within a day, um, have some response usually to, you know, where do I get this fixed or, um, you know, where can I find this or is anybody else seeing, you know, this pest out, out in their fields. And so that, you know, to me, my fellow growers is my best source of information. You know, I've been really impressed with what's happened with the listservs over the last few years. Uh, I guess I would say the listservs and the Facebook groups over the last few years, they used to be things that that oftentimes would devolve. But I feel like that's really changed now. And it really is a place where you can go for information. And I think if you if you're not tapped in, if you're not tapped into these community based resources for farmers, whether it's in your local community or whether it's these national groups like you see on Facebook, you've really got to get tapped into them because they really are a great place to, to get your questions answered, uh, to get some support and to get pointed in the right direction. Absolutely. For many, many years, I, um, and I actually am still subscribed to the market farming listserv. Um, that's an example of a listserv that was really pretty vibrant for a, quite a while. And I don't know if everyone has kind of shifted over to the Facebook uh, communities or the Google group communities, but the kind of traditional email listserv um, maybe is, I don't know if it's becoming a dinosaur. The fair share one seems to work. Yeah, I think it probably depends on 
probably depends on the group and the personalities and kind of the history of what's happened yeah. with it. So what's your favorite crop to grow? I, I have to say carrots, um, even though there are parts of it that, you know, they, you know, that hand weeding is just a huge task, but, you know, carrots are one of my favorite vegetables. You know, I love hearing the stories from my customers about, um, you know, I, I, Elliot Coleman has the same story about his carrots being like the hot trading commodity in, in the school lunchroom um, because he has these super sweet carrots that he sells. And it's the same thing for me. Um, my kids come home and it's like, you know, did you eat your carrots today in your lunch? It's like, well, I ate most of them, but, you know, everybody else wanted them because they're so good. So it's just incredibly rewarding, especially to hear about kids, you know, liking vegetables. And then, the, you know, the parents are so grateful to you for providing vegetables that their kids like to eat. And you know, it's just there's nothing like digging carrots and seeing those brilliant orange jewels come out of the ground, especially, you know, as you, as you, as you wash them. Seeing that color just emerge out of the soil is, is wonderful. I think anything that grows underground is, is, a, is a kind of magic. Yeah. Finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Don't be afraid. Don't be hesitant. Uh, we, I talked about my tendencies to being, you know, hesitant and, and not aggressive earlier in the show. And, you know, another way that I was hesitant was, was investing in equipment. And I was out there, you know, killing myself with a Troy built rototiller and, and, uh, and, a you know, not even a wheel hoe. Um, for, for too long. Cause I was, a, I was afraid to invest in, you know, spend some money. You got to spend money to make money. And that's, you know, a kind of a cliche and can get carried to an extreme and, you know, can get carried away with that. Um, but you know, most tools really do make the job easier and better and make you more productive. If, especially if you use them well and you buy tools that are sized to your farm. And the great thing about all these vegetable tools is that they usually have high resale value. Yeah, you don't use them up very much because vegetable farming just doesn't tend to be that hard on equipment. Right. All right. John, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Honor to be invited, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 92 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Hendrickson. That's H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. You can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I want to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Whether you're supporting the show on a monthly basis through Patreon or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, your support matters. Thank you very much. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Finally, I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I received through the suggestions form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.